it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Adopt U.S. Kids presents. What to expect when you're expecting a teenager learning the lingo. GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And we, we have a, a group page also. We have two pages, a regular, just I guess, page, and then we have a group thing. People can chat about different topics or the shows and who they like to see or comment on other guests. Um, that were on and, 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 you know, their reactions and things of that nature. I think the group gets uh, the announcements sooner or they seem to like, you know, Facebook blocks certain things and I think the group it just seems to get information faster. So I would encourage you to, to sign up for the group part. You can also check me out on Instagram. I'm Saturdays with Joy Keys uh, on Instagram. And just in general, you want to follow me because I do a lot of giveaways. For example, I'm going to be giving away some of the books that we're about to talk about. Um, so you want to check that out. I give you gift cards and, and show tickets, all types of things. So definitely encourage you to follow so that you can be a winner. And you can check the show out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. Well, this morning is like the queerest, quackiest thing happened to my guest. And I can't even believe that she's going to spend time and talk to little old me. Uh, she's a Guggenheim Fellow and HBA Chair of Humanities at Scripps College. Uh, she's a Haitian-Canadian-American writer, uh, and she was born in Port-au-Prince. Um, but uh, she has several books out. You might have heard about The Loneliness of Angels, The Scorpion's Claw, The Spirit of Haiti. Those are some of her book titles. But today we're going to be talking about her novel, which is based on the 2010 Haiti earthquake, What Storm, What Thunder. And um, I can't even believe she's talking to me. Good morning, Miriam Chansey, all the way in Canada. Uh, I'm in California. Uh, oh, you're in California um, yeah, now. I'm, in California. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm in California. Hi, Joy. Thank you for having me on, on the show, and, and thank you for for promoting What Storm, What Thunder. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you about it, especially after uh, the the hurricane force winds we just experienced last night here. This is what I'm telling you, people. She's on the phone with me. This the lady. She doesn't have any electricity, and she she's talking to me on a charged up phone. And it's, 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 I guess she's getting warning light. And in, in, you know, California, they always are like in the sunshine. Uh, so what? So yeah, what? luckily. <laughs> <laughs> but, Could be a snowstorm, I mean, right? 
oh my god like wow i'm just glad that you're safe i didn't see yeah, her, her 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 news until i was in the middle of the show and um it, her, her her messages went to the jump so i didn't even know she had this storm and now we're going to be talking about what storm what thunder yeah uh, it's uh, ironic <laughs> very ironic but um you're okay and uh just yeah, like many okay. of the characters some of your characters yeah. survived in the book and some of That's them right. didn't, you know. Right. Um, right. Well, I will tell you, I read the first chapter and I read the second chapter and then I kind of had to put the book down because I was like, mm. I had to take a breath in a sense of like, I'm wow, sure. you know, I'm I'm sitting here, you know, you have your complaints about life and um, you think about your family, and definitely with the COVID situation, mm-hmm. that brought a lot of instability to people in America that they had never experienced before, ever in their right. lifetime. Um, right. Except unless you were around when the uh, what do you call it in the 30s, um, mm-hmm. uh, then you wouldn't have that feeling at all, ever. Not being able to get toilet paper, and yeah. food, not, not knowing if you can go outside. Right. All these things that we here in America just haven't had to experience, and right. so many other places have. Um, why are you writing this book now? Because the earthquake happened in 2010. Was it yeah. something you were going through internally, and your like feelings about it? Um, well, or, or what? Why? Why is this now? Yeah, so so what happened, so the earthquake happened January 12, uh, 2010, as you said. We just uh, passed the 12th year anniversary uh, a week ago, a week or so ago. And um, at the time, I was living in the Midwest of the, of the United States, and I was teaching when the earthquake happened, of all things. And so I didn't learn of it until a few hours after my, my seminar. Um, but at the time, I still had a lot of family in Haiti, friends, colleagues, um, so you can imagine, you know, myself and other people with ties to Haiti just trying to get through with the phone lines and everything was just down. And at the time and, and still today, I was known as a specialist in Haitian women's literature and uh, Haitian women's issues. And so people called upon me to uh, either track down people for them that they knew were in Haiti at the time of the earthquake mm. or, you know, to talk to groups about what were best practices after the earthquake because it was uh, hugely devastating. So it took weeks before, you know, we, you know, people could assess what the, the extent of the damage was. But we knew when we saw, you know, the major uh, landmarks fall, like, you know, the equivalent of the, of, of the White House in Haiti fell, a huge cathedral, which is a big landmark in Paul Prince, you know, fell. Uh, when both images started coming out the first few weeks, then we realized, well, actually after a couple of days, we realized something, you know, catastrophic had happened. And of course, 300,000 people died, 1.7 million people were left, you know, without shelters and food insecure. And, um, you know, for maybe two, three years, I was just giving talks on the, on the subject and working on fundraising and endeavors of that kind. And at the end of that three years, when, when I realized there was no more work that I could do in those areas, because there are people who are specialists, you know, in aid issues and human rights issues in, in Haiti, uh, and, and I sort of retreated from, from that kind of work. I noticed that people were starting to reflect creatively on the experience of the earthquake. So 
maybe a way to think about it is that many of us went into survival mode and Mm -hmm. we didn't have the time to really process, you know, really go through a grieving process, you know, in terms of the loss of life, the loss of, uh, you know, material, you know, landmarks that, that are part of the patrimony. And so when I noticed that other people were starting to do that reflection and I had more space after those three years of doing that kind of work of giving talks and, and assisting as I could, I realized that as a writer, there was something I could do that maybe somebody else could not do in terms of bringing alive, you know, to, you know, American readers and readers outside of Haiti, what the experience of the earthquake was like. And part of the reason I, I also wanted to write about it is that by 2013, 14, 15, a lot of people had forgotten what had happened. You know, when I would, mm. you know, travel or, or people would say, oh, you're from Haiti, um, people misremembered what, what had happened. They would say, oh, there was a hurricane there, or they would say there was a tsunami. And I would say, no, you know, it was the second largest earthquake in you know, modern history. The last largest earthquake in terms of, of death toll was mm-hmm. in uh, China in the 1500s. And so, um, you know, and I knew a lot of people who were still struggling and are still struggling today. You know, I found out a couple of weeks ago, I knew always that there were still people living under tents into 2020, 21. Um, and then in the new year, uh, I think the Haitian Times, you know, put together a kind of graphic of you know, the numbers, like what's, what's really happening. And mm-hmm. there are still 200,000 people under tents now. Wow. Now, yeah. Crazy. So, so, so this is why um, I wrote the novel, and, and, it's, and it's still pertinent because now we had a second earthquake in August, August 14th, mm-hmm. uh, 2021, mm-hmm. in a different area of Haiti, but uh, still leave, leaving 2,200 people dead and another million people uh, insecure in terms of food, uh, less so in terms of shelter. But so I read so somewhere, I read somewhere that a, a Trinidadian painter kind of sparked something. Yeah, is, who was this painter? Can you tell us about? Sure. Him? And, and the, was it a picture you saw? Or so yeah. um, his name was Leroy Clark. Um, at, at the time that we met, he was in his early to mid seventies. Uh, he's probably the best known painter of Trinidad. Um, he's considered a national treasure, and I had been writer in residence in uh, at UWE, the university there at St. Augustine, in 2012 because of my last novel, which had won a, a prize in the Caribbean. And when I went back in 2013, a friend said, "You really need to meet Leroy, a friend of mine who's a playwright." And he said, "You know, he's working on a painting cycle on Haiti, and he had started right after the earthquake." So I was taken to his uh, home and gallery, and he had at the time over 70 paintings, um, and I just started weeping in the in the gallery space. And he came, you know, out of out of nowhere it seemed, and and came to me and said, you know, what are these paintings saying? And Leroy had never been to Haiti. He had never studied really? painting. Never. Okay. Wow. He had he had started a painting in 1986, which he had never finished which in 1986 is when the Duvalier regime ended, and he had left it and gone on to other things. And then when the earthquake happened, something came upon him, and he finished that 1986 painting, and he started painting every day. And at the end, I think he had 111 paintings in the cycle, um, Mm. some of which were exhibited in Haiti later on. 
Um, and Leroy, unfortunately, passed away this summer, so he didn't see the novel uh, come out. Um, but it was the spark because in that moment when I started weeping and he asked me, what are they saying? What does this mean? And I basically interpreted his own work back to him. Uh, I realized that he had been in some ways interpreting for the dead. You know, he was kind of going through a kind of, you know, some people might call it inspiration. I call it visitation. And when I got home, I realized that people had been talking to me for years. When I would give talks, for example, people would come up to me and tell me their experience, you know, of uh, either someone passing away or what they had been through, uh, and, and we would commiserate about the earthquake. And I had never really thought about why that was happening continuously over that three-year mm-hmm. period. And after I saw those paintings and, and did that interpreting work for Leroy, I realized that in the same way that he had been visited, you know, every day while he was painting, that people had been giving me messages all this time, and they were doing so because I was a writer, because they assumed at some point, you know, that's my job, you know, but I would, <laughs> right. but I would write. And, mm-hmm. and when I finally had that realization and I realized also that I had so much knowledge about the earthquake because I had been giving those talks and following the news and working with NGOs for years, I realized I knew enough to be able to, uh, you know, give a kind of intimate feeling. Uh, and that's, that's what a novel can do, you know, separate from, you know, the talks I gave were academic, they were intellectual, but this was about reaching some other place in the same way that Leroy's paintings reached him without his even knowing what he was painting. I felt yes. that a novel could do something like that for my readers. Well, I definitely think, like I said, I, I, I had to kind of stop reading for a minute and then I had to start up again because I just was like, okay, I got to get ready. I don't know what she's going to throw on me when yeah. I start reading the rest of these yeah. chapters. And you know, I read a lot of books, and I'm reading so that I can talk to you and I sound stupid, you know, and it's, so I'm really looking at, you know, the characters and their environment yeah. and, you know, how women are portrayed and how men are yeah. portrayed and how kids, I'm, I'm just really getting into it. So sometimes when things are really heavy, I kind of have to, like, take a yeah. stop and, 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 and step away uh, And I've heard it. that. I've heard mm-hmm. that from a lot of readers, and I think that's that's completely okay. I mean, I have also heard from some readers who like to breeze through books, but it, but it might have been too difficult for them. Um, but the point of the novel is that this is an ongoing situation, and so if anyone you know needs to stop and start, in a way they're going through the, a similar experience on a small scale that Haitians are going through on the ground. I mean, imagine, you know, like the character who's lost her children because people did lose their children. Mm. Um, they have to stop and reassess and start again and think about how they're going to lead the rest of their lives. And that's going, that's a, that could be for some people a lifelong process. How do they live without uh, loved ones, especially children that they lost well, in this? Yeah, I mean, in this um COVID period, I'm, I'm just going to try to compare. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not completely equal, but sure. for, for us here in America and, and all over the globe, people have lost so many people during COVID. Right. Um, and again, in places that normally don't have to deal with such devastation. That, and, that, right. and I think that is it really shook people to the core, if you will. Yeah. And and talking about that, I was reading that um, Frederick Douglass had some inspiration for you. 
uh, in relation to the title. Can you talk to the audience about that inspiration? What's the connection? Why Frederick Douglass? Yeah, so I cited, so I have three epigraphs at the beginning of the novel. Uh, One is is an invocation to Legba, the opener of doors, you know, African God. And then I have a citation from Frederick Douglass's essay, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, which I came across, you know, I read it every year, as, as many of us do, I think. And that particular year that I read it, I was working on the novel, and it struck me that he had this, the, a couple of lines, for it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storms, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. And it really struck me because I, I was thinking about uh, the ways in which you know, people don't understand what happened in Haiti in 2010. And Douglas, of course, you know, this was written in 1852. He was talking about the emancipation of enslaved people in the United States. But there was a way in which I was thinking that, um, you know, one of the things that's in, misunderstood about Haitian history are the ways in which Haitians were in some ways put back into a kind of bondage after the revolution. So the Haitians, you know, freed themselves in 1804, um, but were immediately clamped down upon by, you know, the French uh, and other global international actors because of their self-liberation. And so I quoted from this not to say that the earthquake was needed, but it is a kind of the devastation that was wrought. It's kind of a wake-up call for those of us outside of Haiti and, and outside of places like Haiti that sometimes don't really know why, you know, a, a country is in the condition that it's in, why its infrastructures, political or, or building-wise, are frail. And maybe to make us think about, you know, how, you know, a, a, a storm like this one, a natural disaster like this one should be a wake-up call. And a wake-up call also because those tectonic plates don't just run under Haiti. They run all through, you know, under the Caribbean, under the Florida panhandle of the eastern seaboard. And there have been predictions that we will see, you know, those seismic shifts uh, affect, you know, mainland United States. So we should be concerned not just because it's the humane thing to do, and in fact, when the earthquake happened, many U.S. households did give, you know, to earthquake relief. Unfortunately, much of that didn't reach uh, the people there. Uh, so people do care. But, I, but if we are not concerned about how, what these natural disasters can do, uh, and as you're, as you're talking today about, you know, COVID, which is in some way a natural disaster, um, and, and the ways in which we contribute to them or don't pay attention to what they're telling us about, you know, our conditions, then these things will happen to us at some point. And I'm sitting here in California, you know, where we wait for the big one, as people say. Mm-hmm. Um, how prepared mm-hmm. are we here? Uh, and ironically, uh, the protocols from California were used to assess building uh, damage in the Haiti earthquake. So there, there are interconnections between these places, and, and we need to know more about how we're connected. Well, there was an earthquake here, not nowhere near the size of what happened in Haiti, but it went all the way from down, uh, I, I think it was, uh, the, the epicenter was Virginia or Washington, mm. D.C., and it went all the way up. Um, the coast and um, people felt that um, and nobody again one of these things that never happens and it was like whoa what was that yeah. and then it came from where so mm-hmm. um, you know our issue of preparedness but one of the things that you talk about in the book 
and you and this issue of interconnectedness is water. And yeah. one of your characters is selling water, you know, <laughs> bottled water. And, and I remember um, I had dinner with a guy. He worked for the water department here in Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. he was like, Philadelphia actually has some of the cleanest um, sink water um, mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. But there was this huge rush of this bottled water. And I told yeah. my mom, I remember, I said, you know, one day we're going to have to pay for air. Yeah, yeah, I hope not. And there's actually a movie. There was a sci-fi movie about mm. this. I, I can't remember what the characters. They were like people who were outside, and there was the people that were inside. The people inside had the nice filtered air, and then mm-hmm. one day, you know, the revolution came, and they were trying to get air. It was as simple as that. Right. It wasn't trying to be mean-spirited, but they were like, we need air to survive just like you do. And because they didn't have quality air, they were, you know, had all different kinds of diseases and things. But right. in your book, The Guy is Selling Water, um, <laughs> what, is, what is your thought about bottled water? Do you drink bottled water? Do you have a favorite one? <laughs> or do you take well, water from the sink? I mean, seriously, yeah. it's very well, cool, you know? Uh, I, I live in greater L.A., and unfortunately the, the water is not clean enough uh, to be drunk right out of the tap. So mm-hmm. we do use uh, bottled water, but it is a huge dilemma. Uh, and, and in Haiti, after the earthquake, you know, you know, before the earthquake, potable water was already scarce. But after the earthquake, it was pretty much, you know, non-existent. And one of the things that struck me is that when aid started flowing into Haiti, you know, weeks after uh, the earthquake itself, there were images of pallets of water, like huge pallets of water that were brought in. And uh, what happened right after, I remember these images as well, is that they were not distributed to the local population. They were distributed to NGO workers who were coming in. Not to say that they didn't need that water also, but the people who had been waiting, suffering, were not the first to get that water. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I reflected on, you know, when I was writing the novel was, well, who did have access to water? Who didn't have access to water? What do people do when they don't have access to water? Uh, And and some of that is, for example, people drinking alcohol because, you know, it, it... it cleanses to some extent, but you can imagine what it could also, you know, what can also lead to, like alcoholism, which is why one of the children's parents in the novel is an alcoholic. And so, so I, was, I wanted people to reflect on, on just this, that water is becoming a scarcity everywhere. Many of us, you know, depend on, on bottled water, but there's so many places in the world where water is not clean uh, you know, that, of course, leads to disease and other kinds of illnesses. Uh, and then we also have a, a, the tragedy which occurred a few months after the earthquake, which is that a U.N. troop uh, dumped, you know, uh, unclean you know, sewage, basically, into the main tributary of Haiti. Mm, and mm-hmm. that led to cholera um, that they brought uh, from, you know, another part of the world into the country. Cholera had never been, had not been seen in uh, Haiti for, you know, uh, like 50 or more years for, for wow. a very, very long time. And so the aid, you know, that came, came with a price and thousands of people uh, died from cholera uh, in, the, in the months ensuing. So it, it really, you know, I really wanted people to think about, you know, how all these circuits work. You know, you can't just say you're going to help people and then create another disaster on the back of the last disaster. Um, yeah. And so, 
And then, and this character is an ironic character in some ways. So he is Haitian, but he's becoming yeah. uh, become a French national. He's mm-hmm. a multimillionaire, and yeah. uh, he goes back to Haiti just prior to the earthquake with this idea of selling them the you know what he considers the best water, um, because he doesn't see any conflict in in you know uh, distributing water where it's needed, because he's a capitalist and he wants to make money. Um, and so part of what the novel attempts to do is to give you also a sense that Haitians come in all kinds of, you know, perspectives and backgrounds, and not everybody has the same views on what should happen next. And, 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 you, and you bring up the issue um, of, of education and yeah. what is knowledge and where you get knowledge from and whose knowledge is respected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly the scene with Malou uh, in, in, the, in trying to, to get her bones um, yes. and, and the funny thing with the guy, um, he was actually an actor almost, almost like Allegba, the trickster, when he's mm. presenting to, you know, the businessman to try to get the contract signed. But the trick's on him at the end mm-hmm. when he is surrounded by water. Yeah. Know? I mean, it's uh, interesting uh, that, that you, connect, you connect them because uh, the, the, the water salesman, his name is Richard, is the son of Malou, who's the market woman who frames the novel. Mm. And so, and he's become this very good businessman because he is the son of a businesswoman that nobody listens to because people tend not to listen to the poor or market people. And this is why Malou frames the novel. And of course, the ironic moment at the end of Richard's section is that he goes back to the water. He goes back to the ocean and he has an epiphany in the ocean. I won't give it away for, you know, your listeners who yeah, might not have read the novel <laughs> yet. Uh, but, but at the same time as he has that epiphany, he hears his mother's voice. So there's a, a kind of uh, poetic uh, moment where he recognizes at, 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 at this very peak moment as the earthquake is about is happening, um, mm. you know, everything that he's neglected, which is this knowledge that Malou has, and in some ways imparted to him, but that he's also neglected. And so part of the message of a novel is also, you know, uh, you know, who do we listen to when things like this happen? Do we talk to the people who are the most affected? Uh, do we find out what their needs are and what knowledge they have of their own place in the world? Yeah. I read that your maternal great-grandmother was a market woman. She was. Uh, my mother's did, grandmother. Did you frame Malou based on her or just based on your knowledge of being in the marketplace and seeing the, the women at work there? I would say both. I would say both because um, I'm, I'm, because my, my great grandmother was a market woman. I have a great respect for, for market wo- women. She was a self-made uh, business person. She employed, you know, by the end of her life, she employed other women uh, in a covered marketplace. And, um, you know, gave my mother and her mother a home. She bought a family home where everyone lived. Um, she was very successful. And so when I'm in marketplaces uh, in Haiti and elsewhere, I always talk to the market people. And one of the things that you find out when you talk to the market people is that they know everything that's going on in <laughs> the local space. But they can also explain to you global economics because it affects them in their very small, you know, marketplace. Uh, and so it was a mixture of the, of the respect I have for my own great-grandmother, what I wanted to impart 
uh, to Malu and then, you know, to the reader through her and also just, you know, what I know from having talked to market women. And then it also provides some of the setting for the novel because everyone has to go through the marketplace. You, you know, uh, it's kind of the equivalent of farmer's markets in the U.S., except that our farmer's markets tend to be, you know, places that people like to go to uh, if they're not going to the supermarket. It's kind of a reverse in Haiti, but you go to the supermarket like we go to farmer's markets, but you go to the open markets as like of an everyday occurrence. Mm-hmm. And so everybody goes there uh, to get their produce, to get their goods, you know, the rich like the poor. And, and, um, and so that's why the market woman needed to be an essential part of this novel for me. Do you, um, are you still able to read? Um, uh, do you sure. have enough light to, to read? Uh, I do. Um, and also, I, I would be remiss to say I should be calling her Dr. Chancy because she does have a Ph.D. in English uh, from the University of Iowa. So, so she's no slouch, people. Okay, uh, and and, and uh, so, so, Dr. Chancy, please read a little from the book. Sure. So I'm going to read um, from a section. Um, uh, the character's voice is, is Sarah. So the novel is in ten voices. And we've talked a little bit about Malou, the market woman, Richard, her son, the millionaire. So there are three family groups in the novel. And I'm going to read from a different family group. And we spoke earlier about the woman who loses her children. And so I'm just going to read um, from a, a short piece from her section. Okay. When the men from the neighborhood attempting rescues with their hands move the broken slabs from above the space that housed them, She knew already that they were unlikely to be breathing, moving, dancing flowers on supple stems. She knew. So she turned away when they brought them out one by one, those limp bodies, not the ones she had birthed, one after the other. The third was still writhing with life, bloody like afterbirth, and men in mass spirited him away with Olivier at her side. Olivier is her husband. Olivier saying he would return, where had he gone? Olivier, who had not been there when the first two were unearthed, but who had emerged miraculously to take the boy away. No, she said, these bodies are not mine, and walked away from the bloodied and broken bones, the glassy, bulging eyes, the tears frozen to the skin by dust. She saw but pretended not to see and let them take the bodies of her two little girls away. They would never dance or move or grow long hair down their backs. They would never sway against a sea wave or a lover or the sheer bliss of their own bodies at rest. They would never know her again or Olivier. Where was he? She turned away from the question in the same way that she had turned away from the children's bodies, the bodies that were no longer the children. Rather, she should say, those husks. Leave me be, she said, at the source of the tugging. Inside herself, she was in a rage. How dare it pretend to be one of them, to tug at her like that and torture her with the memory she strove to forget. Olivier had come back a few days after dues with a third, Jonas, one of his legs cut off, bandaged, two vials of pills for the boy to take for several weeks until the sutures healed, fell off, which they never would. Olivier would count the pills into her hand, one white, two pink, until she learned that it would be up to her to continue 
after Olivier left against her will. She didn't think the boy would ever heal, didn't want to look. Olivier took care of it at first, then after two or three weeks when St. Lesions started to appear above the bandages and the level of pills and the vials lowered, he'd left her with what was left of what had been their son. She dared not look at what remained. Every time she did, the dimming features of the small face made her heart ache, took the breath out of her. If she stopped breathing, she would no longer be able to take care of it. She might float away. So instead, at first, she fretted about the tent, tried to keep things in order, used the water from the silver bowl that appeared at the mouth of the tent every day, set there by Loco's gnarled and rivered hand. Loco was old, kind, said he had a daughter who looked like her. She didn't respond when he spoke to her, let him speak, took the water, bathed the thing on the mattress, changed the dressings, and kept the gash wound dry, tried not to look at it, asked Malou how to treat the faint reddish lesions, staring at her angrily from what was left of her son's leg. Malou promised to get more pills and a special ointment from the foreigners, wondered when all of this would stop. Where was Olivier? Everything made her angry deep down, an anger she could not show. Her rage manifested itself in the refusal to conform to camp life. The lining up for rice delivery, the rice was meted out by the plastic cupful from fat white burlap bags emblazoned with the red, white, and blue of the American flag. Scrawny children who seemed to belong to no one moved through the sinew of legs with eyes trained to the ground, picking up fallen grains into the palms of their hands. The lining up for water when the big truck with a rounded back came trundling down the broken cement, spilling half of its contents along the way and more when it stopped to open the faucets installed at the back before anyone was ready to fill their ramshackle containers, ranging from small chip china cups to emptied coffee cans to multicolored Tupperware too. at the beginning, the large translucent containers designed for hauling water from distant wells that some had had the foresight of toting with them rather than attempting to save photographs and whatever trinkets they held dear that meant nothing at all to anyone else on earth. The lining up to take a piss in the trenches dug out along the extremities of the camp by men who spoke a language no one could understand, though some looked like them, dark of skin and gaunt, as if they had come from a place where food was also scarce. The lining up, the lining up, and now the pawing at night. Why had the ground opened up and swallowed them whole only to leave her alone walking the broken roads? Gives you the chills, you know, mm. really gives you the chills, especially as a mom, uh, you mm. know, and I think about if I had lost my daughter at different times in my life, she's older, and, and even now, because, you know, sure. she's out in the universe, I think about what what is the feeling, what, what would that feeling be, you know, yeah. would I stop like she did, would I be able to continue, um, she, she, she talks to their ghosts, yeah. um, and, and you have ghosts in other parts, too, uh, 
when the cab driver DD yes that's right uh, is um, on his He's he's damaged. He has um, an accident of sorts. I don't want to give away exactly what happened, but he has an accident. He's on, I think it's coding, and um, he thinks his father is visiting him. That's right. You know? He has visions. That's right. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) But you're right, because they're, you know, uh, often I, and I think other readers, we focus a lot on uh, Sarah's ghost, you know, her children. And Jonas will come up and have his own section later in the novel. Uh, mm-hmm. But Didier, who is the other, there are two characters who are outside of Haiti when the earthquake happens. Uh, Didier, who is part of a, another family group, so the third family group, and uh, is a musician in Boston, kind of down on his luck. And when he has this, this experience uh, and he's, he's taking you know, drugs for the pain, he is visited. Uh, he thinks it's his father. And, and he doesn't yet know or, you know, the earthquake is about to happen. Um, and so part of what I was trying to bring up and, is that, you know, there is a kind of coexisting with um, larger forces, you know. And so you could call the wind or, or you know, the, 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 the earth, you know, breaking open a kind of uh, a visitation from, from something larger. But then you also have, in, and we have a strong belief in Haiti, that when people pass away, uh, they become our ancestors. You know, they be, they, they, they're not really ghosts. They become something more than that. They kind of become spirits that help us in our everyday life. So mm-hmm. no one is truly dead, you know. Right, right, um, right. And, so, and that might be, for someone like Sarah, some consolation once the grief uh, is dealt with. But she's not there yet, you know, the part that I'm reading. She's no, not she's yet. not there yet, <laughs> not yeah. at all. Um, well, one of the things you also speak about is love. And mm-hmm. there's a beautiful, beautiful relationship between two of the characters, Sonia and Duvonet, I think if I'm pronouncing yeah, it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not actually lovers. Right. Um, and that's an interesting thing. And then you talk about the love of the son and mother's or mothers and sons, mm-hmm. and uh, fathers and their families, Olivier, who is, um, at leaves after mm-hmm. the kids are dead, and you're like, where the hell, oh, but where the heck is they? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is how people deal, people, just because someone leaves doesn't mean they don't love you. You know, just exactly. because somebody's there with you doesn't mean they love you. Okay, right. there's, there's that too. Um, and, uh, also the guy with the water, he, well, I don't want to say, okay, I'm not, I'm going, I don't want to give too much away, <laughs> but anyway, you deal with different areas of, of, of love. Um, how yeah. did you come up with the Jubilee and Sonia? Because I was like, wow, that's a really interesting, they were so intensely connected. Do you know yeah. someone like that? Have you seen that type of, or did you have that kind of relationship with someone? I mean, I don't want to be too personal, but <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, the characters come from all different parts. And, and, you know, I think every author will tell you that every character has some part of them, you know, uh, within them. And I think we all have, you know, some degree of chosen family. Like we have our, our blood ties, our kin ties, but we also have our, you know, our friends and people we love and care about that we're not related to. Uh, but one of the reasons I was inspired to write about Sonia and Dieudonné because they're considered, they consider themselves part of the, 
what we call the community M, so the queer community in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sonia is, you know, has a dilemma that she's a strikingly beautiful woman and uh, she makes the decision to go into sex work, actually, so she'll have some control over what happens to her body because she's come, she comes from a, a lower socioeconomic background. And she, she has this plan, you know, that she's going to become a rich man's uh, mistress so that she's not abused by anyone. And it's in that process that she meets Dieudonné and in some kind of way kind of falls in love with him. But because of the work she does, she decides to have relationships with women that she does it where she's not, you know, uh, you know, having a transactional relationship. And he himself is M and has relationships, uh, intimate relationships with men. And so it frees them in some ways from kind of any fetters of uh, a heterosexual relationship. But I decided to write about, about two individuals from this community because after the earthquake, there was a lot of blaming going around, a lot of blaming of different communities. And women who love women specifically in some groups were being blamed for the earthquake. And you might think, well, how is that even possible? Like, how could you blame a human being or a group of human beings for the earthquake? But Haiti had a big earthquake like this in the north part of Haiti in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened where uh, women who loved women were also blamed for having caused that, that earthquake. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, why is this happening? And part of, so Haiti, has a, like many societies, has a very patriarchal um, structure. And women who uh, make choices outside of those patriarchal norms are often mm-hmm. labeled as being yeah. lesbian, even if they aren't, you yep, know. Yep. Um, and the idea is that they're strong women, and because they're strong, that seemed threatening. And then that has created this kind of lore that they're then, they have these powers that are otherworldly and destructive. And this is where this, this came from. And so I wanted to create a character. So I no, wanted sorry, to create. That's, that's okay. Go ahead. So I wanted to create a character in Sonia, and Sonia means wise, uh, who has this wisdom and who is able to navigate. So, you know, in her section, she talks about what will happen when she returns to her neighborhood because being both a sex worker and being in the M community, she feels like an outsider. And one of the comments she makes is that nobody's going to ask questions about that because they're going to be looking for help and she and Judoni go back to help the community. So, so that's where that came from. And, and, and again, not giving away the end of the novel, it's also why Sonia has a special uh, role at the end of the novel where the women, different women, come together to heal at a sacred site, which is a real site in Haiti of pilgrimage uh, called Sodo, where people go mm. to cleanse themselves and to heal themselves. And so I wanted there to be a kind of healing element in the novel around this kind of discourse where we think of inclusivity and love, and it's, it's all as many facets as you've recounted and how all these ways of loving are equal one to the other. Well, I'm glad that you had the cleansing <laughs> part at the end. It definitely does uh, give a, a, a little relief or reprieve from the thoughts that you, you give us throughout the rest of the book. Thank you so much. And I hope that you will be safe. Your family will be safe. Everything will get fixed. Thank you so much. And you'll get your electricity back on. And I'm just honored that in your, in your moment of distress, and, yeah. and and trauma that you're having a conversation with little old me. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. And, and, you know, I know that you had booked the interview quite some time ago, and so I didn't want to let it go unless I really couldn't be here. And, and all I can think about is that what we've been through here in, in Southern California, and I, and I hope no one has uh, endured loss of life, but at least in, in my house, what we've endured is, is less harrowing than what people went through that night of January 12, 2010. And so I wanted to be here and, and, and you know, pay my respects to the people who, who perished and survived in the earthquake, especially given uh, that we just passed the 12th year anniversary and people are still uh, enduring. Well, I think that's the importance of it, that they are still struggling and so that your book is calling out, like, don't forget, don't forget, yeah. don't forget. Right. It, it's still happening and, 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 and they're still there. Um, that's right. Okay, well, I'm going to let you go, and I hope everything works out the rest of the weekend for you, okay? Thank you so much. And can I just say one last little thing? Yes. Is mm-hmm. that if, if anybody does want to reach out and help people in Haiti on my oh, website, okay. which is my name, miriamchancy.com, I have a special uh, page that just lists different places that are safe to uh, give resources to, you know, funds to, and people mm-hmm. can look at, at any place that, you know, any sector that they're interested in, the arts, children, women's groups, uh, and reach out to them. So just so that they know that there's that resource. Okay. I will post that on um, the social media so people know that they can go there and, and look for, for that information. Again, thank, you, thank so you for all your, your writings and also for your continued um, just educating us here now about what's happening. Thank you. Thank you, Joy, and have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So um, got disconnected there a little bit, people, but um, I just want to let you know I'm going to be giving away some copies of What's Storm, What's Thunder, so you want to follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And uh, Dr. Uh, Miriam Chauncey, she's, uh, her, her, her web address is her name, and um, it's spelled M-Y-R-A-M, and then Chauncey, C-H-A-N-C-Y. I'm sorry, N-C-Y, yeah, N-C-Y, yep. So I'll post it, though, um, on, on the Twitter and the, the other social media so you guys know. You can learn some more information there about how to help. Uh, she has a link there, Haiti Relief Fund. You can click on that and um, support the different projects that are, are listed there because, as she said, people are still um, suffering and dealing with the effects of something that happened so long ago, and we've probably forgotten, um, oh, yeah, that earthquake and thinking that everything's fine, but it's not. So um, check it out there. You can check out the rest of the shows on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio and on Google. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. I'm going to be speaking with a great actor from The Rookie um, uh, this um, coming up soon. So uh, check that out. And then, of course, uh, all the other authors I'll be having um, – you'll see listed on the website. You can just go to blogtalkradio.com slash joykeys or any of those places where you get your podcasts. You guys have a great weekend, and I will talk to you soon. What if you were wearing something sexy? What if you were drinking? What if you made the first move? No matter what, 
sexual assault is never your fault. Support is available 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Call 1-800-656-HOPE or visit RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. This is Christina Ricci with RAIN, reminding you it's never your fault. Brought to you by RAIN and this station. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.